0: Good morning, beautiful Sunday, warm morning. I'm not going to complain about the heat, but it's out there. <laughs> going through the Gospel of John, the latter part of chapter 17. We'll pick up, we'll get there in verse 20. And remember, a quick review after praying for himself, Jesus did in the first five verses of chapter 17. He prays two things for the 11. And the first thing he prays is that the father would keep them. And he says in verse 12, while I was with them, of chapter 17, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he prays for the 11 security to let us know that our God, once again, isn't just a God, a God that saves, but he's a God that's able to keep us. And then he prays for their sanctification in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the mechanism that he uses in order to keep us maintaining a holy life, and you can't get away from it, is the word of God. The word of God cleanses us. The word of God washes us. It keeps us in the straight and narrow way, no matter what the world is lobbying and saying to us. And now his prayer shifts from his disciples to those whom his disciples We bring will bring to the faith in him. And so verse 20 tells us, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Not just the eleven, Jesus has said in verse 14 of that same chapter, I have given them your word. He gives them their his word. The good thing about the apostles and those that come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, he just does not give it to us. We must receive his word, and that's what they did. And and when we have received his word, we begin to walk in his ways. I'm reminded of when Paul and some of the other apostles, they go into the book of Acts, and it's, it's around Acts 17, and he says this. But when they, speaking of the Jews, they didn't believe the word, did not find them looking, so they were in search of the the apostles, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. My question to all of us this morning, are we turning the world upside down in our area of life, in, our, in the workplace, in our homes especially, in the colleges and the universities and at school, are we turning the world upside down, which is really right side up because the world is backwards? That's what the 11 was doing. That's what every true disciple of Jesus Christ will do because the living God indwells us. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Word, That's us. We stand on the foundations, the Bible says, of the apostles and prophets. And then he goes on to say, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone Everything else is built on Jesus and nothing and no one else because everything else is nothing but sinking sand. But if you're building your life, like the song just said, on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, everything will be fine. Jesus says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus Christ, he looks down 2,000 years of history and he begins to pray for every believer here and every believer in the world. And of all the things he could have prayed for us, he says the most important issue the church is going to struggle with is a unity issue. And that's a shame. So Jesus says, I better ask you, Father, to assist them in this thing. I'll pray that my body would be one, that we would be one with one another. Listen, to the degree that the Father and the Son are one with one another. How can that happen? How does that happen? It's all, it all happens by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And notice as he speaks about unity here, he continuously uses this word one. It's repeated all the way through this passage. And there is also another word that, and that's in verse 21. And what he's saying, in other words, there's a reason for this unity it's not unity for just unity's sake, Jesus is saying, but that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, once again, Jesus is not speaking. He's not talking about unanimity, which is a consensus of being unanimous. He's not speaking of that. He's not speaking of uniformity, that we all overall have the same likeness and dress alike and all of those things. He's not speaking of that, but he's speaking about unity. Jesus Christ, he loves diversity. If he didn't love diversity, he would have made us all of one race. If you are good Bereans, and I know you all are, you know that all of us came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you want to go a little farther than that, from Adam, Adam, and Eve and humanity were made up of all multi colored ethnicity. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. God did that because he likes that. Matter of fact, in heaven, it tells us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, speaking of the Lamb, of course, and to open his seal for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. No one church can be everything to everyone. That's very, that's impossible. But Jesus, once again, he celebrates diversity, but his desire and that desire, that word is also that his will is that all churches should be one. And when the world sees that, that's what Jesus is speaking of. When he sees black and white and Latinos and Asians and everybody else coming together to worship the one true God, that's when the world will know that there's a supernatural God doing this, getting us together to fellowship. And the unity that the world will see as a witness that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. So that's very important to Jesus. You know, our country is so divided over politics and so many other things. But let it not be said of that when it comes to the body of Christ, that we are divided. Because Christ, as Paul told us, cannot be divided. And if you are on the wrong side of Christ, to put it plainly and simply, you're not one of his. Our lives should line up with what the scripture tells us. And I'll move on from unity after this. Unity is not something we produce. It's something we already have, whether we enjoy it or not. You've got it. Because Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28 tells us, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. I can say a lot about that in today's culture, but I'm not. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus. So once again, unity is a fact. Whether you know it, whether you experience it or not, the Holy Spirit inside of us brings that unity. I've said before when we went on that mission trip a couple of times to Columbia, I'm on the plane and I'm thinking, man, this is gonna be strange. I'm not gonna know what to say. I'm wondering if they're gonna like me and I get over there. Brothers and sisters in Christ. It was amazing. And that's the way it should be if we are who we say we are, no matter where we go in the world, we have unity. Now, verse 22 talks about Christ's glory upon his disciples. He says, and the glory which you gave me, the manifest beauty of his holiness, the going public of that, the glory, the kabod, the Greek word, the doxa of God. He says, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Now, in what sense did Jesus give the disciples his glory? I believe that's in the sense of Jesus completing his task of revealing the father to them. Because the source of all of this glory belongs to the Godhead. And Jesus brings that glory down to earth. And knowing Jesus is knowing the Father. And he shows us his glory with this fellowship with the Father. He has shared with his disciples to the extent that he can say, if you've seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father. And even in eternity, we will be learning of the glory of the Godhead. Jesus then says in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. He's praying that the world will know that you love them. Speaking of the believer here, And I'm still learning of the love the Father, the Godhead loves me with. And that can be difficult because we are so used and we are so prone to trying to earn love, doing the right things when you were a child to please your parents. That's okay. That's good and well. We should. But it's always about earning love. And God is saying here, listen to what Jesus is praying. Father, you have loved them as you have loved me. That blows me away. There's no perfect, more perfect of a love than the father, the way the father loves his son. And that same way the father loves the son, Jesus is saying That's the same way the Father loves us. That's amazing to me. When the Father looks at me, and when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our imperfections. But what he sees when he looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, he loves us. Think about when John was on the island of Patmos. And the glorified Jesus Christ reveals himself to him. And in John's postscript, he says this, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. He says the one who is in the Hebrew is Yah. The one who was is whole. The one who is to come is Va from Jehovah, Jehovah, God. And he extends grace and peace to everyone that's his child. That's amazing to me. He knows us from all different angles, and he still presents his grace and his peace to us. Find someone else, if you can, who does that. And when he looks at us, He sees us in Jesus Christ, and that's very important. Jesus goes on, he says, And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I will. The New King James says, I desire that they also whom you gave me, gave me as a gift once and for all, a once and for all gift may be with me where I am. All through the gospel of John, we've been reading, Jesus says, I don't say anything but what the fathers say. I don't do anything unless the father does it. When you see me, you've seen the father. I'm in the bosom of the father. And the one time, the only time, go through the gospel, that Jesus raises his will and says, Father, this is what I want, I will. No man could ever do that and not be in sin. But Jesus says, of all the things I want, this I have one request. Father, I will, that they also whom you have gave me may be where I am. Father, I can't wait to get everyone home. My mom, my dad used to talk about that all the time when my brothers and sisters, they may be off to college or whatever. And my mom and my dad would always say, I can't wait until the holidays to get all the kids at home. That's what Jesus is saying. It's nothing like that, to get them around the table and talk sports and talk the Bible and talk, well, not politics, but everything else. You, you could talk politics if you want to, but that's my point. You, you can be yourself. You're open at home. And Jesus is saying, I can't wait to get all of you guys home with me. That's what I want more than anything, that they may behold my glory. That word behold The Oreo, to view, to perceive my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundations of the world. That they may not be far away. That day when we get to see Jesus Christ's glory, I don't believe is that far away. Because my Bible tells me that the rapture of the church can happen anytime. You can call me an an escapist. I'll take that. But I think that any other position is foolishness by me reading the scripture. Look at what's happening in the world. Forget about the world. Look at what's happening in America itself. And remember, this is the restrained version The Holy Spirit is keeping all of this back. And then the restrainer in that time will be removed. Look at what's going on today. Hatred and bigotry and discrimination. All of this is the restrained version. What will it look like when that first seal is open and the Antichrist rides forth? That's what the world has waiting for them, those that don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So Jesus says in verse 25, "O righteous father, the world has not known you. Ask anybody today, the unbelievers, yeah, I know God. But Jesus says the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. In verse 11, he calls on his holy father, and he's emphasizing his holiness here. And now he calls the father his righteous father, and it speaks of his character and the standard of righteousness that he holds. Once again, only the Godhead can look at the law and make it blush. God in his holiness and his righteousness who the world, Jesus says, does not know. The world has created their own gods, but they don't know the one true God, nor the Christ whom he has sent. Jesus says, and I have declared, and that's past tense, to them your name, and will declare it, future tense, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Once again, the same love that the Father loves me is the love that Jesus wants us to love one another with. That can only happen supernaturally. That's the only way it can happen, because you guys are hard to love. (laughs) That's supposed to be a joke. You can say the same thing to me. I'm hard to love. Ask my wife. (laughs) But there's a unity there. You can't fake that. Only if you have the Holy Spirit in you that you can love one another just on the basis of that's my brother or sister in Christ. Religion can't do that. I've seen the most devout Muslims and Hindus because they had all those types of religions where I was for a few years And they were so devout, they wouldn't eat pork, they wouldn't eat meat, they wouldn't eat this, they wouldn't eat that. But they just backbited and talked about how holy they were more than their brother, other brother was. There was no unity there. The only time I found unity is when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. No matter of my socioeconomic uh, layer that I'm in, no matter whatever it is. If there's a brother in Christ and there's another brother in Christ, that's special. That's unifying. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. It only happens when we yield our lives to the Holy Spirit and allow him to have his way. It says in chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus has spoken these words, what are these words all the way from chapter 13 when they went into that upper room? all the way to the end of chapter 17. Matthew tells us after they had sung a hymn. I love that. It says, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kindron, where there was a garden which he he and his disciples entered. Now he crosses the Kidron, which means black or murky. It was a place, Josephus said that in these years, and I'm talking about from eighty twenty nine 29 to probably 32, in these years when they were bringing all of these sacrifices to the temples, Josephus says that the average amount of lambs they brought and that were sacrificed was about 200,000. Can you imagine that? And so the Romans had to build this uh, aqueduct that when they would run all the water and the blood out, it would go all the way down to the Kidron, and it would turn the water that was in it black because of the mixture of blood. That's how it gets his name. And so it's amazing. I'm amazed by that the same trek that the Savior is making, going to the Mount of Olives, is the same trek that uh, David made When he was fleeing from his son Absalom, when Absalom tried to make that coup, well, he did for a minute. And so David and his men and his wives, they fled and David went on that same route. Now Jesus is making this trek, going to Gethsemane, the olive press, where he will be crushed, getting his will right to lay his life down for us. Jesus says in verse 2, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was a place where Jesus would take his disciples to pray, and they would pray to the Father. And it was a known place for Jesus and his boys. And now the problem is Judas knows that place. And so Jesus could just kick back and meditate on the Lord. We all should have a special place where we go to pray. Whether it's like the movie War Room, it's a prayer closet, wherever. I heard, a, I think it was Jack Hibbs says, he, he just sits in his rocking chair and puts a, a shawl around him and just rock for an hour and so and and pray, pray for the church. But we should all have that place where we can go and cry out To the Lord. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops, these are Roman soldiers here because most theologians, they used to have this great debate was it just the Jews who who went to arrest Jesus or was it the Romans that went to arrest Jesus? No, the scripture tells me it was a detachment of soldiers and the police from the, the, the temple precinct. So it was both of them. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests, temple police, and Pharisees, just wanting to see what was going down, came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The, The Matthew, Mark, and Luke says they also brought clubs and swords. Now, John does something very different here because all four Gospels speak of Gethsemane, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us of Jesus's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't do that. It's almost as if John gives us great details. He gives us four chapters of details of what the synoptics does not give on the upper room and what went down in the upper room, but when it gets to Gethsemane, John doesn't say anything about that. We have to understand that John, of all the disciples, were the youngest. And most people say he was around 16 or 17 years of age when Jesus called him. Can you imagine that being 16 or 17? So when those young kids come to me, I'm just young. And, you know, this is why I'm not following Jesus the way I'm supposed to follow Jesus. I said, that's no excuse. Think about John, 16 following Jesus with all of his heart. And so when John sees this, remember, they're all all going to flee out of Gethsemane. But what does John do? John continues to follow. John is the only disciple there at the foot of the cross. He hears him say, Abba, Father. He hears him say, I commit my spirit into your hands. He hears all of these words He has a great love for Jesus Christ, his Savior. Matthew was an eyewitness. Mark and Luke were not eyewitnesses. So they weren't that close to the Lord. And Matthew wasn't in the inner circle like Peter, James, and John. My point is here. That when it comes to the scene of what Jesus goes through in this agony, John doesn't even mention it. It's too tender for him. Remember, he sweats great drops of blood. That only comes from a high measure of stress in your life. He knows what he's about to go through. And he begins to sweat these great drops of blood. And John says, I was there and I don't even want to talk about it. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, speaking of right here in the garden, with vehement cries and tears. How much of that does John remember? Once again, he gives us the Passover dinner. He gives us all of those details. But when it comes to this, he doesn't say a word. Now look at verse 3 again with me. It says, then Judas having received a detachment of troops. That word detachment is a cohort. One-tenth of a legion. A legion is a thousand soldiers. Six thousand soldiers. So 600 men the Roman gifts them to go and apprehend Jesus. And then it says, and officers from the chief priests. So all combined probably was about a thousand people that they sent to this man. It says, and Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons, oil pots, lanterns, uh, torches, where they c- accumulated sticks together, tied them together, and ignited them. Can you imagine them crossing the Kidron when Jesus and his disciples are already there looking down and you see there's no lights, there's no street lights, there's no flashlights. You just see all of these torches and all of these men coming to arrest him. What an image that had to be. But check it out. Check out what it says. Verse four, Jesus, therefore, therefore, Perceives what has just happened, knowing all things that would come upon him. A real and true hero is Jesus Christ, one who does not flinch, one who does not shrink from circumstances when they're happening. He had just given thanks, remember, in that upper room and said, this is my body broken for, that's an atonement word for, who pair, instead of this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood, which is shed for you. He says, knowing all things, he went forward. They're there now. He didn't hide himself, but he yielded himself. He had wrestled with the Father three times. The synoptic gospel tells us he went back and prayed Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He prays that prayer three times. And now everything is settled. And he goes and he says, and he said to them, when they arrive, whom are you seeking? And at this point, everything is on autopilot moving smoothly, moving exactly the way the Godhead had set it up to move. It tells us in Acts 2.23, and I'm going to read from the King James because it flows a little better for me in the King James. Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, When he wrestles, and we wrestle all the time maybe with election and predestination, and we wonder how all of that works. But what we usually try to do, we take that word foreknowledge and make it as simple as God foreknows. And since God foreknows, that's why he chooses. But that's not what what it means. What we need to understand is God can't foreknow and do nothing about it be static because he foreknows. That would deny his own nature. If he foreknows, he has to correspond in the way a holy God would. It says his determinant, counsel, and foreknowledge because they go together and they're inseparable. They work together. It says Jesus here knowing all things that would come upon him. It's been settled. In Eden, that's where all of the troubles started. And I'm amazed now that in this other garden, everything will be straightened out. Remember, in Eden, a man sinned. In Gethsemane, the last Adam will conquer. In Eden, a man was disobedient. In Gethsemane, a man will be obedient. In Eden, a man hid. In Gethsemane, Jesus steps forward. In Eden, the sword was brought out in the open. But in Gethsemane, the sword is put back into his sheath. In Eden, the sword by the cherubim, remember that, was there to guard all different ways, the tree of life. But in this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will say, Peter, put your sword up because now the way to the tree of life is open. Everything that Adam did backwards, Jesus has come to straighten those things out. So he says, put your sword away. Jesus says, whom are you seeking to these about a thousand men there. And notice they don't go right up to Jesus and say, come on, we're arresting you. So that tells me that Jesus looks just like any other Jew, all bearded out, everything else. They didn't know who he was because remember in the synoptic gospel, uh, it's Judas who says, the one I kiss, him you seize. And remember, there's a full moon and they had torches But it was still hard to make him out there. These dudes are well armed. They have vengeance on their mind. And they've come to do harm. Bad intentions is in the atmosphere. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks. Jesus said to them, I am The he isn't there in the Hebrew. I am ego, e may is what he said. The same words that 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 burning bush spoke to Moses. He says here, I am that I am. And what he does, he affirms his deity. And Judas, who betrayed him, notice what it says, also stood with them. He's an opponent now. Now, when he has said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. What a sight. They all fall like dominoes. Matter of fact, I think it's Mark who says this happened twice. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? A thousand men with lanterns and torches grouped together and they all fall backwards backwards. Flames on clothing, flames everywhere, putting out fires, doing all of those things. And Jesus is just looking, saying, look at these keystone cops. And if you don't know who the keystone cops are, just Google it. You'll have a laugh there. And he's just looking at this spectacle. And then they come back because he does this for a reason. And he says this. And what he wants them to understand is that I am in control. I'm in control. They were not slain in the spirit. That's nonsense. Jesus is communicating to them that they are not in control. I'm reminded I was blown away of that James Webb Space Telescope. And she showed all of the galaxies and the stars. And I heard so many different reasons why they're there. And I'm just sitting back saying, God, you are amazing. The one who spoke the world into existence, the one who created a playpen for mankind so that we can explore this universe. He's in control of all this, and He has control of everything that's going on in your life. These things aren't out of control. Your life is not out of control. God is there, and he will keep your life in control. He's there. Verse 7 tells us, then he asked them again. I can imagine if I was God, you'd be in trouble. But if I was Jesus at this point, I would say, let's try this again, fellas. Because that's basically what he's doing. He's trying to make a point because he had prophesied twice None of these you will touch. And so he shows himself to be who he is that holds all power in his hand. And he says, whom are you seeking? And they said, I could hear him, just Jesus of Nazareth. The bass has gone out of their voice. The air that was in their chest has deflated. And they speak with just a little more humility now. That's what an almighty God can do. I love, uh, I forget the Proverbs. No. I forget where it says in Job, can you look at a man and make him blush? Can you look at the proud and make him blush? God can. And we walk around here, I pray not that we're prideful of this and that. And it's Yahweh who gives us our very breath to breathe. PV, you should walk in humility and lowliness of mind, esteeming others are more valuable than yourself. I was telling Lydia the other day, the, I, I, I finally figured it out, you guys. I finally figured it out. Give me a round of applause. When you go out and minister... I don't know about you. Some days I go out, I'm fired up. I'm ready to go out and minister. Can't wait. But a lot of days, oh man, I said I was going to do this. So let me go minister. Let me go serve. And the Holy Spirit said, don't kick yourself because you say that or you feel like that sometimes. Only kick yourself when you don't go. My point is the battle is not when you get there because every time you get there, whether you go serve someone, whether you go do a ministry, the battle is getting there because you have to fight this right here. But once you fight this and you get there, I don't care what it is, you will be blessed. That will always happen while we have these bodies. So don't let that stop you. Just know it's coming And go through it. Jesus says, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is his point he has been trying to make. He says in verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. And this is where he wanted to go all alone because he wanted his boys to be set free. He says, therefore, if you seek me, Let these go their way. Who's going to argue with them now after they've been knocked down, after they're trembling already having to take this man in? He's got his point made. Sometimes, because we're going to find out Peter's going to hang around. Peter's going to make a mess of things. But there was an opportunity When he said, let these go, all of them had their opportunity to go. God will open a door or close a door for our benefit and we can walk right through it. But sometimes we walk so far away from the Lord. When he does that, we don't recognize the blessing he's trying to give us because we walk so far away from him. And so, because we are distracted by other things. Peter was distracted. And so Peter is going to stay there and he's going to make a mess of things. Peter could have and should have left. He says, therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke in John 6, 39, and spoke in John seventeen twelve, of those whom you, have, you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter having a sword. Now, where did Peter get a sword from? That's not good when a fisherman has a sword. He doesn't know how to use it too skillfully, and he's going to find out. But I think I understand where Peter, I know where Peter got this from. It was when Jesus was speaking to them in Luke saying, hey, I'm about to leave. When I I sent you out the first time. You didn't need money. You didn't need a mat. You didn't need sandals. Jesus was saying, I provided for you. But then he says, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack or a mat. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Then the disciples said, they probably didn't hear anything else. Lord, look, here are two swords. And Peter heard that and he must have went and got a sword. And so he's in trouble here. So it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. Now you have a fisherman wielding a sword, and this is not going to turn out good. And struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And of course, we know for him to cut off his right ear, he was ducking, and the guy was going for his neck, and he didn't yield it right. John is written 50 to 60 years after the other three Gospels. That's why in the synoptic Gospels, they don't let you know this was Peter because Peter was still on the scene. Now John, hey, Peter's not around. I might as well let you know that this guy was Peter. So it's there to protect him. I like Peter. I like Peter a lot. Because if you ever get discouraged that that thing called sanctification is not working as quickly as you think it should. All you have to do is look up at the passages of Peter. Peter was the one who said, when Jesus says, all of you guys are going to betray me. And Peter says, come on, Lord, I'm not going to betray you. Even if all of these guys betray you, I'm not going to do that. I'm ready to die for you. And one thing about Peter, he meant that. And so he pulls out this sword, and he's going to go down fighting for his Savior. I commend him on that, but he's doing it the wrong way. One against a thousand. That's probably the odds there. And zeal without knowledge is misguided. And that's what Peter is doing here. Peter means good. He's wanting to fight for the Lord. He's going to help the Lord out. He's going to defend the Lord and he's going to take off Malchus ear. And then what happens? Everything is going exactly the way he wants it in the garden. And then everybody's looking down at the ear of Malchus. I bet everything stopped for a minute there, but this is the problem. That's not what the garden is about. Peter was a distraction. Peter has taken his eyes off of everything that was going on. Jesus has just pronounced that he's God, that he's in control. And Peter's, by being misguided, attempts to help him out and everything else goes sideways. Jesus has to bring order. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but to think of myself especially at the beginning of my Christian walk. Lydia told me many a time, you you might say things the right way, but it's your tone sometimes. So you have to be careful with that. And I was going around trying to share Jesus Christ. And I was just like Peter, chopping off ears. And the Lord was coming right behind me, picking them up, putting them back on, So someone else could share the gospel with them. We have to share the truth in love. We can't get ahead of God. God is in control here. And that's what he wants Peter to understand. So he says in verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into a sheath. I don't need your help here, Peter. Remember, he said in Matthew, or do you think I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Peter, this isn't out of control. This isn't at all what it looks like. I'm still in control. I'm here to do my father's will. And this is the father's will. That I'm doing, that I'm yielding to be arrested. To let the father's father has his way. Can you imagine if Jesus would have spoken the word, you better believe all of the angels in heaven was chomping at the bit with tears in their eyes to come down and handle their business because Jesus was being so mistreated. But Jesus had his father's will to do. So he tells Peter to put up his sword into the sheaf. And then he says, shall I not drink the cup? which my father has given me. Peter, the father is in control. This is the cup I'm supposed to drink. Don't protect me from what the father has called me to do. Don't protect me from what the father has called me to do. I'm not telling you how to parent your kids. I'm telling you the mistake my mom and dad made with me. Once again, after high school, I didn't get into any trouble. But that freshman year in college, it went downhill. And they would always be there to bun me out, to send me to this class, to do this, to do that. And so I got in, hey, I might as well stay in trouble, do what I want to do, because I know my mom and dad, they're going to come bun me out. And I told them, when I came to know Jesus Christ, You shouldn't have did that. I know you love me. I knew you loved me, even if you would have left me in jail. And I told Lydia when we were raising our kids, especially the boy, I said, Bright, I will come because everybody makes mistakes. I said, I will come get you out of jail one time if I can. And after that, you're on your own. And so he knew that. And Bright never went that way. And my point is, we're really not the parents. We do what the words say. God's the parents. But you can do so much for your kids because you love them when it's a time to say, I've got to turn you over to the Lord. Now, that's between you and the Lord when you make that decision. But you can mark my words on that. That's how the scripture works, even with the prodigal when he left. God loves those kids, your kids, more than you do. And if we raise them the right way, we can turn them over to God and say, Lord, not my will, your will be done. So he says in verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. He allowed them to bound him. Psalms 18, the latter part of 27, tells us, Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. That's exactly what they're doing here. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Will the real high priest stand up? Because we have a problem with the high priest. Annas was first the high priest around AD 6, I think he lasted to AD 15, and Annas ran the, the crime syndicate mafia. Annas was a scandal of a man, even though the Jews appointed him. So when Caiaphas comes on the scene, they sit Annas down, and Caiaphas, by the Roman rule, they make him high priest. So when they bind Jesus and they arrest Jesus, the reason they take him to Annas first is because they say, hey, we don't care what the, what the Romans say. We're taking him to Annas. He's still our man. But sooner or later, Annas has to take him to Caiaphas. The reason I tell you real quickly that Annas was a ruler of the Jewish mafia. Imagine this. As all of the pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem, some will only make this trip one time. And they come with their lamb. They come with their goat. And they go to the temple precinct in the court of the Gentiles, where they shouldn't be anyway, but they didn't care about the Gentiles to let them worship there. So they're there in the bazaar and they're selling animals. And these pilgrims, they bring their lamb. And if whether there's a spot or blemish on it or not, Oh, those rulers of honest is going to say, hey, here's a, here's a blemish. You've got to go over here where they're kosher and, pi- and pay 10 times more for this animal. That's how he was making his money. And then if you got smart and you went to Jerusalem, you say, okay, I'm just going to take money and purchase one there, right? Well, at the temple, they only used the shekel. And so you had to change, exchange that for the temple shekel and an exorbitant price, and Annas was still making money, hand over fist. Most theologians tell us that in 32 AD, Annas made about 3 to $5 million there in that time with the racket. It's a shame that people get up and speak this name and or claim it, just give me this, and God will bless you this way. And it was turning people away. So that's why a lot of people didn't like Annas. And that's why in that same week, Jesus goes, because he turns over the tables when he first starts his ministry. And when he is getting ready to be crucified in his last week, he turns over the tables again because he knew what they were doing. And it was a sad time there. Matthew tells us this. Matthew 27, 18, as they arrest him and take him to Caiaphas. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Hmm. Luke 12, verses 13 and 15 tells us, Jesus, these two men, these two brothers are arguing over an inheritance. And Jesus, they said, Jesus, settle this argument for us. And he says, then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, that's the first and only time i ever heard Jesus say man, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, take heed. This is for all of us. Take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. That word life is not bios, natural life. It's not suke, the soulless life. It's zoe, that eternal, fulfilling life that every believer has because you have to give up your life, your suke, to God to enter his kingdom. And he will give you that zoe life that abundant life. There's an exchange, there's a trading off. But what's what's going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these leaders and the high priests, they're holding on to worldly goods and worldly things. What Jesus is saying, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even, even matter. What does it profit a man to gain the world And lose his soul. These things are going to be burnt up anyway. Why? Run after them. Paul says he's going to provide you food and clothing and housing. Wherever your lot is in life, be satisfied. Real quick and I'll close. Because my heart is broken. Lydia got onto me around three in the morning because I was reading on my phone, and I was listening to this article. And every time I read an article, and I'm reading at Fox News about the church and these pastors, and why aren't people in church, and what's going on with the church, and and they speak about social issues. Well, if you just had money in this area, people wouldn't have to rob and steal, and things would be better. If you just had this, and if you just had that, and I'm telling you guys, I'm not exaggerating. I've read over seven uh, 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 articles, and only one mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. And that was just in a quick Jesus, Jesus and continued to roll. What I'm saying Things aren't going to get better by buying this and, 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 and doing other things in communities. The problem is because they're making excuses. The problem is we are sinners. And we are in need of a savior and we will not bow and bend our knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. The poorest person in America is not is probably richer than anybody Of the common people. I would say in Haiti. So being poor. Is not an excuse. To rob and steal. And do everything else. There's a heart problem. There's depravity in man and man is in need of a savior. And that's why Jesus came. And, th- and I'll, I'll go all the way around and end with this. That's why the religious leaders did not want to give up their position. It was because of their position. They were caring more about the here and now than the then and forever. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about the here and now. I'm going to take care of you. I'm in control. No matter how far south the government goes, I'm in control. Stay, continue to abide in me. And I'm going to bring you to an acceptable end. That's what I'm here to tell you guys. Things aren't going to get better in generally. We've got to put our big boy pants on, keep our eyes on the one who created the heavens and the earth, and walk with him. That's all I'm saying. That's all we need to know. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. We're born, and I don't mean to be callous about this because I've lost loved ones. But we're born to die. Just make sure, when it's your time, you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Sadness, because we do, we do not have a file of worship team can come up. We do not have a file to put death in, so it's always strange and it's always awkward and it's always it's not good. But for the believer, believe me, it's a promotion because this thing down here called. Earth, the only planet with human life on it, it's not going to get better. That's why it's important, that's why it's imperative for every believer to shine like stars in the universe for a dying and a depraved world, that we may show the love of Jesus Christ. Let us stay in the Word, let us stay in prayer. And allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Father, I'm so thankful that Jesus would pray for me. 2,000 years ago, he had me and every believer in here and that's watching on his mind. And nothing can shake that. Because we know everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But your love for your children, Father, will never be shaken. You love us with an everlasting love. Because we have believed in your Son. Because we are connected to your Son. And all eyes is on him. And whatever comes our way is filtered through his loving hands. And he's right there with us to go through anything that comes our way. The believer in Jesus Christ should be the most confident person in the world. Not arrogant, but confident, knowing that our God loves us. And he's not only a saving God, but he's a keeping God. And he will keep us to the end. Father, we love you. Father, give us grace to continue to bow to your will in every area of our lives that we may be, bring glory to your name. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.